I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. Today we are delighted to be joined by Paul Rennie, head of the Global Economy Group at the British Embassy here in Washington, D.C. Paul is leading the UK's climate and energy, economic and trade, science and technology networks and efforts across the United States. Just a few things on your plate there. And prior to this role, Paul led the Foreign Office's strategic transformation program focused on delivering a 21st century diplomatic service, something that I hope we'll get to talk about at some point because that sounds fascinating. Absolutely. He joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in 2001 as the first of a new group of diplomatic service economists he has served across the globe, the United Nations, New York, Brazil, India, Malaysia, has also been on secondment in the cabinet office and the Department for International Development. Paul, we are thrilled to have you on today. Thank you for joining Pleasure us. Pleasure to be here, Mary. Thanks for having me. Let's start out with the UK approach. You had a really thoughtful policy paper that came out last spring. You have been in the forefront talking about your approach to AI regulation, the pro-innovation approach, I think it's fair to say, a little unique from others around you and across the globe. Please, for our listeners, start off by setting the stage of what is your approach? How would you characterize it? What makes it unique to the UK? So I think the first place to start is we need this approach because we have such a large and vibrant AI community within the UK. You know, the, the tech industry in the UK, we were the third country to reach a trillion dollar valuation. More than 50,000 jobs are tied up in the AI sectors. We are home to almost double the number of AI companies of any other country in Europe, for example. So when we start to think about why is the UK in this space in the first place, it's not because we aspire to be a world leader. We are already a world leader in the AI space. And so, that means from our perspective, how do you properly integrate the opportunities of AI across our business front, not just in the technology space, but financial services, healthcare, every part of the UK economy knows it can be touched by this, but also every part of the UK economy wants to be kept safe in that journey. Any new transformational technology that we bring out there, the citizens want to be kept safe. They want to trust what they're getting. The businesses will want a good regulatory environment that gives them consistency. But at the same time, we want to make sure it would work. So in the white paper we released earlier this year, we really talked about the five core values of the work we wanted to do in AI. So we want to talk about safety, security, and robustness. And it comes self-evidently at the top. We want to talk about transparency and explainability. People need to know what's going on within the system. We want fairness. AI systems must be fair. Fairness, a very British thing to be fair and just. We want accountability and governance. And we want contestability and redress. So people should be able to come back and look at it. And we talked about risks in the white paper. One of the other risks we identified is not doing enough to embrace the technology. So when we think about risks, it's not all a case of the downside worry. It is also the risks we don't fully take advantage of all the opportunities we have. So that's the kind of landscape into which our white paper is coming. Super, super interesting. And also noteworthy that it's different from some of the other primary players today on the AI regulation space. So how does it differ from your neighbors in the EU, in the US? Are there other countries or other organizations who have been a model for your efforts? Who can we all learn from as you have in creating this framework? 
No, it's, it's a good question. And to some extent, I don't think there are a lot of differences just yet emerging between our, our common approaches. It's been striking, for example, that the, the Japanese colleagues through the G7 Hiroshima process have taken a role already. We see that at the United Nations, OECD, any number of other people are coming together to, to collaborate in that regard. And I think one of the key similarities we see is everybody is concerned about some of the similar kinds of risks. You know, how are we managing these risks? But also, how do we categorize them appropriately? So self-evidently, you know, the British government is much more concerned about the high level risks of, of a bioterrorism threat or, or AI that can create kind of weapons of destruction we're concerned about than we are about the speech to voice recognition on your Teams meeting or whatever it might be. So I think all the countries have recognized there are different thresholds of risk in that regard. And um, I think we're also working through different regulatory processes. You know, the United States approach with the voluntary commitments reflected where the administration's kind of remit runs. So they've been able to support a good set of voluntary activities, a lot of companies coming together, the presidential convening voice, the executive order are all a key part of that. But then there's also a big role for Congress to play in actual regulations, setting the laws of the land as well. So again, the US system is working within these different elements. And from the UK's perspective, we're looking at all of this. You know, we want to see the collaboration. The work we're doing isn't trying to be separate to that. It's trying to build on and support G7, UN, G20 processes. We want to make it compatible with international partners. You know, the UK and the US are home to the, the world leading AI industries in that regard. So it's really got to work well together with our partners and our allies. But it also has to leave something for the next round. I mean, the UK will not solve all of this in one go. We need to make sure that what we are leaving behind is a legacy for the next summit to pick up or the next leader to pick up and keep driving that process and forward. So I think that collaboration is the key. The one thing I would say at the heart of this is agility. It is moving so quickly. It is so important that we as a country in the UK can keep pace with that, that we as a global community can keep pace with that. And as you will know from your, your time previously, it's always hard for governments to move at the speed of the markets. So true, so true. And you mentioned a few important variables there, the need for agility, the need for interoperability. So hitting on that point where AI does not operate within boundaries. And so we have this, you know, almost false pretense where we have different countries taking different approaches. At the end of the day, how would you hope that we can collaborate and move towards more interoperability in our laws and regulation in the AI space? So that's a it's a great point, Miriam. And I was recently at an event where one of the major tech companies said, we don't think of you as countries, we think of you as time zones. Hmm. And that was really revealing because it's always been this way. I mean, we look at other global challenges around climate change or international tax policy. Companies are global. You know, the major tech companies have offices in India or Brazil or the UK or the US. And we are just a time zone when you log in. But as countries, we still have an electorate. We still are protecting our citizens. It is one of the core duties of a government to protect its citizens, to create prosperity for them as well. And I think that is part of the relationship we need to get to with companies, is to recognize that the citizenry has to have a voice, it has to have a say in how it is being kept safe and how industries operate. We set standards in the UK on things like diversity and inclusion, on how people must be treated at work. And so again, the AI journey is no different to how we're going to be using that in these industries than any other kind of technology that has come before it. But I think we're also seeing an increasing globalization of standards. 
And you see that recently with any number of new pieces of technology that respect you know, the recycling of materials in them or the kind of dangerous metals and chemicals. We keep raising the bar on these kind of global standards. And I think with AI, that will be the same kind of journeys. We will have leaders in the field, the US, the UK, we've taken leading roles. Those roles will then translate to international standard setting and norms. Because from a company's perspective, you want to know your product working in Mumbai will be just as well received as working in Memphis, Tennessee. But equally from a country's perspective, you want to ensure if new technology is emerging from elsewhere in the world, your people can trust that it is safe. So I'm, I'm hoping there's a virtuous cycle of people raising standards together rather than seeing this as an attempt to block them a step away. Mm -hmm. But speaking of blocking, you mentioned a few of the risks that come to mind as we all think about AI, its use and its potential harms. So making sure that we realize that final point you mentioned in the report about looking for opportunity, I'm curious if you could share more about what are the risks that come to mind as you lay out your framework. In your approach, what are the biggest hazards to our community, to our society, that you want top of mind as you're having these conversations about AI regulation? Yeah, so I think one of the key things with AI is, is how well do we understand this technology? And, and how do we set the guardrails to ensure it's safe? So a lot of the AI safety summit that the Prime Minister is bringing together, I mean, first and foremost, it's about frontier models. I mean, this is not about trying to regulate, you know, which holiday comes at the top of your listing on a travel website. It's thinking about the deep frontier models, the deep foundational activity that's there. And the risks we see there around, you know, how would AI be used by somebody who wanted to do us harm? You know, how might the development of bioweapons or bio threats has been something top of mind for a lot of my colleagues working through this, or terrorism threats, or the risk of hacking people's accounts or manipulating them, or financial fraud. And one of the big things I think that is different with generative AI in that regard is people have often said in the past, well, you know, I can find all this stuff on the internet. Why is AI any, any different? The big challenge with some of the generative risks are it could help you find the solution. You know, if you are trying to develop something that could do the public harm and it doesn't work out, the internet won't tell you why you got that wrong or, or what happened. But the risk with generative AI is that it could help you perfect your process. It could help you understand where you're at. Now, some of these are very high level risks. There are the risks as well around how do you generate content which is harmful to people? How do you generate you know, text or deep fake images or other aspects that could create a public harm or create a kind of public outrage? You've seen recently in America on the West Coast, people concerned about jobs and what risks there are to jobs. And again, I think a lot of these risks come back to this question about, do we know what is happening inside the box? Do you trust your customer? None of this is particularly new. Um, know your customer, KYC, every one of us has probably filled in a form at some point for a bank account or opening up a new business that has some of this. So it's not particularly novel, these tools, but it's just the risk around AI coming at scale, generative AI coming at scale, being accessible, being much more democratized in its access, gives government a need to think a bit harder about how we're going to create a sense of safety for the public in that journey. Such interesting points you raise that so many people feel this is new, novel, unprecedented, and in some ways it is, but as you point out, so much of it is not. And we've buried the lead here. You mentioned the UK summit that's coming up in just a few weeks, the beginning of November, you're launching the first of its kind AI summit, uh, but a traditional approach, a convening, a yes. summit to talk about these risks and hopefully align. But tell us, what are the aims for you in this summit? 
who can we expect to participate and what would success look like? Sure. So I think, first of all, in terms of aims for the summit, a big part of what the prime minister wants to do is internationalize the conversation here. I mean, we've, we've talked about the US and its voluntary commitments. We have G7 processes and others. But from the prime minister's perspective, this is a chance to really internationalize the conversation around safety. I mean, the invitations have gone out to a wide section uh, of countries. We have, you know, hoping for participants from Latin America, Africa, Middle East, Asia. This is not just about the US and the EU and the UK talking together. This is a genuinely international bubble, which I think is reflective of the potential impact on a lot of different countries. At the same time, it's also about trying to get real movement, real action, real change. So necessarily, uh, that requires kind of key interested parties to be able to come to kind of conclusions and deals. So there's five priorities we have in our space for this summit. One is the understanding of the risks. So again, how do we come together and, and appreciate what it is we think are the challenges we face? The second is around international collaboration. So that's thinking ahead to what shared frameworks we might want, who might own these shared frameworks, where they would sit. So again, how do we support international frameworks, not just national statements? Thinking about what organizations themselves can do to increase safety. So again, this is not all about government mandate. What are the companies, the organizations themselves proposing as means to help support the safety? Uh, fourthly, is around AI research and collaboration. Uh, and we can talk more about that. For me, that's a really fascinating way of saying, how do we understand it as governments ourselves, not just relying on the companies or others telling us it's safe. And there's stuff we can talk about in that regard. And then finally, global good, AI for the good globally. And again, we shouldn't lose sight of this. It's not all about the safety concern, it's the opportunity that AI brings as well. So that's really our big five goals for the summit and internationalizing these conclusions is a big drive for the prime minister. We are so excited about it. I think each of these are so important on their own together, really could have tremendous impact. You know, you mentioned you want to say more about the AI research. Please do. I think there's a few pieces that I want to pull out of that for us yes. to share more about. It's also, I think, so interesting of who you've invited to participate. You mentioned a number of countries we don't necessarily hear about when we're talking about AI traditionally. I think that's a really important development. And can we start with you elaborating a little bit more on how you thought about who should be participating? Absolutely. So. I mean, the Prime Minister very much sees the global nature of this. I mean, the Prime Minister has a background from Stanford. He very, very much understands this topic. He very much pushes us as officials to be experts in the field. And when he thinks about this, as he has about a great many other problems, is how does the UK work internationally? How do we take a leading role internationally? And self-evidently with AI, much as it has been with any number of other international issues we worked on, it touches everybody's lives. You know, Facebook access, you, you mentioned some of the countries I've lived in, you know, Malaysia, Brazil, India, all of these countries are involved in working in the technology space. All the customers in these countries are involved in Facebooks or Metas or whatever it might be. And I think that is where their voice has to be heard, their voice has to be involved. At the same time, the countries themselves are developing AI technologies. I mean, at the moment, we have ourselves, the US, China, I mean, there are leading countries in the world in this, in this area. But new ones are coming through all the time. And you only have to look, for example, at the Dutch and their you know, incredible skills in photolithography to remind ourselves it's not always the mega countries that can have some incredibly powerful technologies that we matter to the debate. And critically, you know, as we remind ourselves, we're just a time zone, not a country to these companies, these international companies. They have to feel that wherever they go in the world, they will still meet these standards. 
you know, we sometimes talk about tax havens. You'd hate to feel there were places that became AI havens that companies felt they could go to out of reach of government. So I think that's why the international space really matters to the Prime Minister. It's everybody both a shared sense of protection and safety, but a shared voice to contribute to that debate as they develop these ideas and programs. So interesting. And, and you've obviously been so intentional and thoughtful about all the different levers and all the different audiences and stakeholders, both in terms of the global participants, but also on the thread of the organizations and companies and what their role should look like. So very interested to see what comes out of that and the AI research space one that I think has not been enough in the forefront and there has not been enough intentionality in the international space as to what we can be and need to be doing there. So I'd love to hear more about what your goals are in that thread of your summit. Well, so one of the key things we've set up is the Foundation Model Task Force led by Ian Hogarth. Now, this is an attempt to improve our internal means. Internal means with academics, with scientists, not all entirely in the hands of British civil servants, excellent as British civil servants are. And there's a hundred million pounds the Prime Minister has committed to this task force to help bring it together. Now, now, why does that matter? If you think about something as simple as the automobile in America, perhaps one of the last great technological changes we've had before AI revolutionized people's lives. But people want to believe the car is safe, safe for the user, safe for the pedestrian, safe for the people around them. So something as simple as a car tire. The car tire is tested. You know, we trust the companies to test the car tire. But how did we set the parameters for that testing? You know, we say, well, it's got to be inflated to so many PSI, it's tested at this temperature, it's tested at this speed. And if you pass all these requirements, we'll say that tire is safe. Now, how are we setting these requirements for companies? You know, companies can self-regulate to some extent. There's a long history of that, but it's not always perfect. So being able to sit down with the financial model task force, be able to work with our research and say, if you're going to do red teaming, this is kind of the best practice in red teaming. If you're going to test if the model has holes and problems, this is kind of best practice with the holes and problems. And critically, if you discover something isn't working, come back and find us. Tell us what's not working so we can spread the word. And I think that's why it's important we have an, an element of expertise in this space. The prime minister certainly believes that expertise is needed rather than just allowing companies themselves to operate effectively in a bit of a black box as to what they think will work and what kind of standards people can trust them. Fascinating. And, and as you talk about the aspirations, the different stakeholders that need to come to participate, and the different audiences who you hope to touch, you mentioned that one is the global good. What are the opportunities here? We talked about some of the risks yep. that are driving and motivating your work. What are some of the opportunities you have in mind as you do this work? Where do you hope we land yes. uh, with AI benefiting our society, our community, our globe? So I think there's, there's two bits to this. I mean, one is the kind of enormously aspirational work. Things like AlphaFold in the UK, which has led the way in sort of protein mapping, thinking about new opportunities to tackle disease. There's, there's really huge ways that AI could intervene on climate change challenges, on how we're supporting our next generation of energy. You know, fusion is incredibly complicated. How might AI help us to solve a lot of these problems in real time? But I think there's also a day-to-day -day opportunity. I was joking before we, we began chatting how my, my father once said he loves his job when he gets a chance to do it. And I think a lot of us might feel like that today. You know, we are a bit overwhelmed by what comes into our inbox. We're a bit overwhelmed by trying to set up meetings or, or get things organized or get the right information. We're in an information overload to some extent. 
And I do wonder if part of the opportunity for AI isn't just in the big, you know, alpha fold world, but also just in the day-to-day. People will be able to take a lot of the hassles and challenges away, allowing people to get back to interacting more with each other, liberating their creativity. All the things that really make us feel human, some of that will automate away. And, and it, it's interesting, I, I was talking to someone the other day, how many phone numbers can you memorize or recite by heart? The only one I remember is the one in the house I grew up in 25 <laughs> years ago. Everything else is on my phone. Yes. Now, is it a bad thing? I cannot remember 600, 700 numbers on my phone. Or is it a liberating thing that I have access to all these people instantly without having to keep finding my notebook and my scrapbook? So technology's really helped us on our journey to be more of ourselves, be more human to some extent. And I think if we're doing AI well, it's how it should feel to all of us in the future. Well, amen and cheers to that. <laughs> so speaking about if we do this all well, you've mentioned many critical, noble, important aspirations for this summit coming up in November. How will we move forward? If it, you mentioned that you want to tee this up for future summits, what do you see as the next steps to make sure we make good on these important conversations, the commitments, so that this summit time has been well used? Yeah, so I think there's two journeys, I think, always with international events. You, you can kind of broaden or you can deepen over time. It's hard to broaden and deepen simultaneously because that takes a lot of negotiation. And I think what you're finding now with the safety summit that Prime Minister is putting together is we've taken you know, the work that the US has done, the work the Japanese have done, the work that others have done, and we're now broadening that. You know, we're talking about safety with a wider group of countries you know, that are going to come together in this space. And if we get successful outcomes here, we will establish a floor together for countries to take to the next step. And the question is, how do we then raise that, that level? So I'm hoping that the next steps through you know, UN processes, OECD processes, will continue to widen. The collaboration will continue to widen the engagement. But hopefully there'll be another round of these summits into the next year, which will deepen it again. It will say, right, we've agreed on the following five or six things as a group of countries. Let's agree on the next five or six things as the same group. And then let's take that agreement and broaden it out. So I think over time it will evolve in that regard, but also how do companies themselves take this forward. You know, we are led by our people. You know, governments do not operate in a vacuum. They are responding to the public. They're responding to the voters. Likewise, companies don't operate in a vacuum. They respond to their customers. And so again, I think customers, as voters already, will start to demand more of their companies. They'll want to know, how are you using AI? Am I talking to a machine or am I talking to a human? But they will also reward companies for good use of AI. If you can solve my problem in five seconds online instead of sitting on hold for 20 minutes, I like that. I want that to be the case, but I want it to be done in a, a safe way that I understand. So again, I really hope from the back of this summit that the companies and organizations themselves will keep bidding up these opportunities and keep bidding up what they can offer to their customers. Well, a noble goal, and we are excited to see you accomplish that in the near term and the long term. One thing I think it's also very important for us all to realize is that as we talk about new regulations and new laws, we are not operating in a vacuum. There are many laws and regulations in the books, and, and that's something we've been studying at Equal AI. I know that it must be informing your efforts as you think about what the framework needs to look like, what needs to be augmented, and what's already working. So for those who are doing business in the UK, what should they be aware of in terms of the fundamentals, the laws and regulations currently on the yeah. books that are impacted by AI, both development and deployment and use? 
So this is one of the key things in the white paper that people will see is we're very much about the outcomes of the technology. So the UK already has in place, for example, legislation on discrimination. And you couldn't as a company come along and say, well, I'm really sorry I've discriminated in the workplace. It's because my Excel spreadsheet gave me the wrong answers. Because the government would say, well, that, that was your choice. You could have used an abacus. You could have used a parchment and quill. If you've chosen to use these technologies, you have to reassure yourself as a company the outcome is good. And it will be the same with AI. You will not be able to step back and say, well, I'm really sorry I've been discriminating or I've broken health and safety laws. It was the AI's fault. Self-evidently, AI is more complicated than an Excel spreadsheet. We can all roughly get around an Excel spreadsheet, so there's a safety journey within that. But it means the UK approach is very much thinking about what are the outcomes you want to achieve. So we are not striving to create a new super AI regulator. And um, We have a new ministry, the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. That will be the home for our AI kind of collaboration, our, our AI thinking. But what we want to do is take our existing regulators, like in the banking or the telecoms or other areas, and make them aware of AI, make them aware of how it can impact their regulatory journey. And I think from our perspective, that means the expertise remains in place. Experts in finance remain experts in finance. We're just adding another layer to their capabilities when it comes to AI, supported by a kind of central core of government understanding. So it's the outcomes that really matter, I think, in regulation. And that should give companies certainty. You know, health and safety will remain about health and safety. Discrimination will remain about tackling discrimination. There's not going to be a new gamut of AI regulatory environment. It's going to be working through existing tools. And speaking of tools, in addition to laws on the books, new laws and regulations that may be coming as a result of this summit and otherwise, and we likewise in the U.S. are having many conversations and hearings, but we also have been developing tools that are I would argue of, of great importance and use, for example, the NIST risk management yes. framework for AI, which is, as you know, a voluntary tool that has multi-stakeholder buy-in and that really helps companies today. Because as you know, if you're a company, if you're an organization that is building and deploying AI, you cannot wait for the regulatory landscape yes. to settle. You need to start being a responsible AI actor today. So for those who are trying to navigate, how do they, know what it means to be a good actor today. If they're operating across the globe, you've been studying what's happening in, in different countries and, and regions. Are there tools that you all have produced that are on the voluntary side? You mentioned the self-regulation. Are there things that you're doing to motivate that within companies? And how would you generally advise companies you're talking to, who you're bringing to the summit and otherwise on what they need to do today to be a responsible AI actor? No, it's a great question. And I should say we work so much with NIST and this, this NIST example is a wonderful tool whereby people from all around the world can look at that, I think. I mean, we want to find convergence. You know, the, the worker and the foundation model task force is going to create more space for people to work with academia to bring ideas forward. Our white paper is a consultative paper. We publish white papers to enable consultation to take place. And what I'd be saying to companies, large and small around the world, is every voice matters right now. You know, we as the UK government are looking and learning of what NIST is doing. I imagine, I would hope, my colleagues in NIST are likewise looking at what we are doing for our white paper work or Ian Hogarth's work. And I think all of that is going to inform debate and discussion. And, you know, companies will have a pretty good feel for what the market will bear. Uh, they will have a pretty good feel themselves when they feel they're treading into territory that's pushing the boundaries. And is this a time to come to governments or regulators and say, I'm in this new space now, how, how can you help me with this? And I think that's where 
government at its best is, is pushing with the grain. We're not trying to develop policies out of the blue. We're not trying to push everybody back into the box. I mean, this is the this is the path we have to walk between enabling, as I said, the risk of not doing enough to make AI an opportunity is at risk at the same time as managing the concerns that people have about where this will take us. So my advice to companies would be is look across the full landscape and hopefully this AI safety summit when we hold that will, will again give you another sense of where is the collaboration coming together? Where are we coalescing around a shared set of values? Not every value will apply in every country all the time, it will always be parts at the edge. But my sense is for these big international companies, they're offering the same wisdom to NIST as they're offering to us right now, as they'll be offering to governments in India or China or you know Singapore and elsewhere. And that's an important thing if you feel they can collaborate and be listened to in that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of listening to important voices in this journey, we've asked you questions as an ambassador for the embassy, but you yourself have such an interesting perspective. I love hearing your thoughts on AI, innovation, regulation, but you've had a very different experience coming to AI. Your background is in humanities and social science, international diplomacy. Can you also share with us, how did your adventure, your journey land you in the AI space? And how do you find your experience in the humanities and social sciences diplomacy impact your perspective and your work in this space? Well, it's been fascinating for me because I'm an economist by background. And so much of economic modeling is, is trying to predict human behavior. You know, when you think about raising interest rates at the Fed, you've got this whole complicated model about how will people react to that. It's all based on weightings, based on probabilities. And the AI journey is very similar in that regard. I mean, the way that the AI is trying to come out with answers is weighting. It's trying to look at people's behavior and guess, well, if I've been asked this particular question, I think you want this particular kind of answer. I think that sort of influencing behavior has been always really fascinating. But also economics as a background is littered with exceptions. You know, we think a lot about people behaving rationally, but people behave irrationally all the time. And I think that's where the AI journey starts to bump up against policymaking. You know, what is it the public wants? You know, there's a perception that AI will give you a truthful answer to a question. We want AI to tell the truth. But you don't have to go very far, even in your own country's domestic landscape, to say, well, there's a question I might ask people, but there's a fundamental disagreement of what the right answer is. So how do you help get AI to the right answer when people themselves can't agree on what that is? And I think from a humanities perspective, that is, that is a problem within a country, is the sense of a single truth. But you can imagine internationally, when you then roll that out, the vision and discussion between countries who have a majority in one religion or a majority in a different religion can vary wildly. And I think that for me is why public policy is so fascinating is we want to make AI a success, but it relies upon a collective idea about what is the right answer. And that's why people elect governments every few years. They believe that X government or Y government has the right answer for them today. And how companies react to that is also key. They, as I said, they respond to their customers. We respond to the voters. And AI has got a very interesting opportunity in that space, but it will not be true all the time and it will be replete with contradictions. And we have to be comfortable with that. We have to be comfortable with the fact that there will be no right answer in any of this policy. But there should be a shared sense of value, I think, and a shared sense of hope and expectation of the best not being enemy of the good or of the better. And we have to keep evolving that over time, I think. 
Well, a really strong argument for why this needs to be a multi-stakeholder conversation with dealing with AI. Obviously, your economics background has been so instructive in, in your framework and your own mind and approach and something that we're all benefiting now as you create this summit with that as part of your lens. And I can imagine in your team, there must be others with different types of backgrounds that are also leading to very interesting conversations about how to approach this AI regulation. No, exactly. And so the team I lead in the embassy, I mean, as you said at the start, we cover climate change, we cover our train technology journey, science, quantum. I mean, every single one of these fields has both something to contribute to AI, something to learn from, you know, how are trade negotiations done, how are climate negotiations being done. Big international frameworks, exactly the kind of experience we should be using on thinking about AI. Equally, you know, self-driving cars, how will AI work in that landscape is a key question the transport team that works to me as well. So everywhere you go, you see the connections and the opportunities. And I hope that is also what the British government will bring to this safety summit is by integrating our collective wisdom across departments. We're covering a lot of bases, I hope, because I always think history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And, and to your point earlier, Miriam, it's nothing like this is brand new. We've been tackling difficult challenges for a long time. We've been tackling new technology for a long time. But it comes down to people's behaviors, people's expectations. So everybody needs to feel they have a voice. And it has to be an accessible technology. It has to be a fair technology. We don't want one group to feel excluded from the AI journey, either because they cannot access it or because the AI journey is delivering outcomes that discriminate against them for whatever reason. And I think that is where the more voices we bring together, the more likely we are to get an outcome that's, that's favored by people. Mm -hmm. um, but that takes expertise at a lot of levels. And Critically, I am no AI expert. I have AI experts. They are very clever people. They keep me on the right track. Uh, but everybody's expertise is valuable in this debate. And people shouldn't feel shy about engaging and sharing their thoughts. Yeah, so we need all people to participate in, in their own way, whether it's a consumer, a voter, an expert who's helping to organize summits and international action. And, and I really appreciate the example you give of the car. Because that, at its time, rocked the world. It changed how we navigate, how we live, where we live, and it operates across the world. So not in the same speed at which AI operates across boundaries, but for its time, it crossed boundaries in a way that needed to be addressed. You need to have indicators of safety, the tires you explained. You need to have speed laws. You need to have an odometer safety expectation. You need to have common metrics for gas and, and how much to put in and, and, and those sorts of things. And it's interesting because those vary by country and region, but there are international norms that allow for the expectation of safety and trust when necessary. So you may have a, you know, the, the driving wheel on the different side yes. of the car, but it is still a driving wheel that you know is safe and can trust to drive that car yes. or cross the street knowing that it will have brakes that will stop or, or that you shouldn't be crossing because, yes. <laughs> because yes. there's that exactly. car coming. And, and that's, for me, that's a great analogy about, you know, in the beginning, people were literally walking in front of cars waving red flags because that is how unsafe people felt mm -hmm. these machines were. But today they have been an empowering tool. They have allowed people to change the way they live and change the way they work. They've also created discrimination. You know, some neighborhoods have ended up with highways through the middle of them that perhaps shouldn't have. So I think that the automobile for me, the journey of the automobile is a good example of where we can harmonize some standards. We can leave discretion in other standards on a country by country basis. 
there are risks we manage, but we manage the risks so everybody can benefit. So knowing why the stop line is red and the go sign is green means everybody can get to the intersection. Whereas if nobody had any colored lights, you'd be like, well, how do we know this intersection works for any of us? Mm -hmm. And it creates certainty too for the people who make cars. They're like, I know if I put the car out with these tires and these brakes, it's safe. It's a safe car and the customer knows that too. Which again, for me, allows competition in different areas. You know, cars can compete on style or luxury or image. They don't have to say, buy our car, its brakes are safe. <laughs> yes. you know, that's that's yes. kind of removed in that, in that journey. But at the same time, there are macro risks for all of us. So tailpipe emissions, we know are a challenge. We work hard to regulate those. We regulate them not just from a climate level, but also for you know, school buses outside school gates, not you know, giving our children astronaut health concerns. And creating a shared sense of those risks to create a shared sense of then drive your car anywhere you want to go to, you know, load it up with anything you want to load up with, help the industry do what it wants to do with it. I think for me, that's a great analogy of how we want to treat this with respect, mm -hmm. but also create as a freeing, enabling, inclusive journey. What a great place for us to start to land this conversation, although I do not want it to end because I'm learning so much <laughs> and enjoying it so much, but knowing that we have been through this rodeo before we know how to handle innovation and we can get to a place where there is safety trust and international cooperation and participation so unfortunately since we are at the end and i do need to let you get back to the planning and all the other things in your tremendous portfolio i'd like to ask you the final question that we ask every guest on the show and that is if you were given a magic wand with one wish that would help us achieve responsible ai what would that wish be my wish would be we collaborate with an honest heart. This outcome will not be a zero sum game. You know, my victory is not someone else's defeat. Someone else's advance is not me being left behind. I think if we collaborate recognizing all of us can lift together in this space and we collaborate with a genuine sense of making this the best we can for all of humanity, not just our individual interests. For me, that would be the wish I would have. And if we work in that spirit, the outcome will be tremendous for all of us. Well, thank you, Paul. We will all wish for that. Thank you for sharing your insights with us today and for all the important work you're doing. Thank you, Mary. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 